1: Welcome to the Finding Holy Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales, and here at the Finding Holy Podcast, we want to help you connect the dots between the things that really matter and your everyday holy life. This is a podcast for you if you long for a life that feels spacious, but you're stuck with dishes and laundry and a to-do list a mile long. This is a podcast for you if you long to integrate what you know with who you are and how you live. This is a podcast for you if you need a gentle invitation into the ways of Jesus right in the middle of your actual life. Join authors, pastors, artists, and activists to hear how they connect the big things of life into the ordinary habits of their days. To help you on your journey, you'll get one small step at the end of each episode to take with you into your week. You'll get to hear my guest laundry routines, too, because big things matter, but so Does the laundry. Here's a little bit more about my guest today. Laura M. Fabricke is an American writer and poet currently residing in Brussels, Belgium. She's the author most recently of Keys to Bonhoeffer's House, Exploring the World and Wisdom of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a historically grounded memoir of her experience as a volunteer guide at the Bonhoeffer House during her family's diplomatic assignment to Berlin, Germany. She focuses on questions of political theology and the moral imagination. In cultivating the common good, our conversation is fun, it's wide ranging, and you know what? It's actually really applicable to this moment right now where many of us find ourselves asking questions How do I belong to a people? How do I make good choices for the good of my community and the health of all of us? How do I begin to care for the common good? Listen in, you'll get a few small starting practices. Here's my conversation with Laura. All right, friends, I am really excited to welcome one of my good friends, Laura Faberke to the podcast. She has a book that is just out called Keys to Bonhoeffer House. And so we're going to talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, her life overseas. What does it mean to care about the fabric of our social identities? It's going to be really fun. So welcome, Laura.
2: Thanks so much, Ashley. It's really great to be with you.
1: Yeah, it's wonderful. So tell us about this book, Keys to Bonhoeffer House. What is the Bonhoeffer House? Could you
2: like sketch that out for us? We moved there in the summer of 2016. And I discovered when we finally moved into our permanent residence that we lived fairly close to Dietrich Bonhoeffer's house. And it wasn't the house that he grew up in but it's the it was basically his adult residence during his very nomadic adulthood, but he did come back to it. It was really his base in Berlin, and it was the home that he was arrested from by the Gestapo in 1943. I had been learning some about him as we prepared to move to Berlin, and then I had kind of forgotten about it. And then when we were actually there, I wanted to kind of reconnect with that story um, and really kind of put some flesh on the bones of my knowledge. Yeah. And so I arranged for our family to to make a visit. And um, I went back many times after that. And so many times that um, I had a kind of joking conversation with one of the volunteers that I was like, oh, I come so often, I should volunteer. And they said, yes, you should. And I was amazed that they were willing to have a non-German speaking non Bonhoeffer scholar, you know, interested visitor um, joined the ranks. And they had kind of gotten to know me because I'd brought so many visitors there. And that, that be- began my experience of learning to, to tell his story. And what I discovered is that I had a lot of unlearning to do. I had mm-hmm. to really kind of flesh out um, how I understood who he was, And that I found was actually what I needed to unlearn was very much related to my American identity, the way I kind of think about his life, talk about his life. And once I started kind of figuring out where Bonhoeffer began, where I ended um, and kind of realizing that art... I couldn't just simply use him as my personal analogy lens. Like I have to, <laughs> <Yeah. think that laughs> to figure out like how am I Dietrich Bonhoeffer today? <laughs> um, but it is important to kind of let them stand on their own feet and to acknowledge kind of who they are mm-hmm. in their own context and to realize that, you know, I'm I am who I am and he who he is who he was. And um and that we were in were in different settings. Um, and, but then I started, after I kind of learned all that, I started piecing together places where we did share commonalities. And a lot of those were kind of human principles. They were principles that kind of everyone could, could kind of sink their teeth into.
1: Right. And so those that you kind of reference as the keys.
2: Exactly. It was a house I could bike to. So when you come up to the house, um, it's, it, it, it's fairly plain. Like it feels like a pretty plain house. Just when you walk in, um, you really do feel like you're walking just into just a regular house. And I find that really sweet that it's not a museum. You'll be invited into a conference room or you sit around a table and you'll get a lecture from someone like me. And then they'll invite you to come up with them to his bedroom. So um place where Dietrich wrestled with his thoughts. He wrote some of his um, very famous essay that he wrote called... Er- um, after 10 years, he wrote in that room and he wrote part of his ethics there as well. Yeah. So it's a, it's a place that holds a lot of memories silently. It's a silent witness, I think, mm. to a lot of realities.
1: Mm. What sort of responses did you get from some of the people you brought into that bedroom? I mm. mean, just, you know, just thinking of going into kind of increasing levels of intimacy, you know, that you end up in, in a bedroom.
2: Yeah. Well said. It, it is a very beautiful image. There is something that something that does feel kind of intimate it's um but also still distant like you you don't get any there isn't a magic to it I mean it's a place to honor him but it's definitely not a place where we tra- are trying to tend a cult of Bonhoeffer but in that bedroom I think as you rightly describe I think people really do kind of taste that he was he was a real human being um and not simply a hero and there's something about that that corresponds to themselves realizing I have I mm-hmm. I too am a human mm-hmm. being and mm-hmm. I too have things that I need to wrestle with mm-hmm. Perhaps mm-hmm. thoughts I need to get down maybe decisions I'm avoiding um, mm-hmm. that I need to get clarity on. There could be not always but could be pretty strong emotional responses. Um, you know, wanting to do well in the world, to do the right thing, um, and that was always a real gift to witness.
1: How are you able for yourself, right, because you're a character in the book in the same way, right, that Bonhoeffer is. It's your journey into his life uh, as well as just, you know, kind of reporting about Bonhoeffer. But, you know, how were you able to make both Bonhoeffer and yourself a more fully orbed human belonging to a people and belonging to a place? Why is that an important key for you?
2: Yeah. It's an important key because for one, it did help me to kind of slay that heroic narrative. Yeah. Yep. Um, and it was important for me to see Bonhoeffer as he was definitely from an upper class, very highly educated and fairly kind of financially secure family. Um, and in some ways that gave him a great deal of freedom to take on all kinds of risks, that for many people they weren't they couldn't even countenance taking on. Yeah, um, he was the only unmarried adult child of his parents, and so he was, you know, toward the end of his life he would or near the end of his life. Obviously, he became engaged but never married. He had no children, um, and I think that that offered him a great deal of freedom. So already, I'm I know I'm I'm not walking into like any. <laughs> I'm not like taking on the wolf's lair anywhere in some imagine- imagination of my life. Um, right. I am, what I have to do is figure out what's for dinner, right. um, see that I have the ingredients, make sure my kids are doing homework and um, all of that. And uh, so that, it was important for me to kind of say, well, okay, there's aspects of him obviously that I really admire and I would really like to be character traits in my life but they actually have to be expressed in my life and it has to be done and it might be done in an incredibly small way. And I think, as you know, you've written about this, we can be, uh, we as Americans in particular can be so individually oriented and also have kind of maintain a fantasy that we are simply self-made. Right. I know this is something that you've, we've, you and I have discussed um, off podcast. <laughs> <laughs> less <laughs> formal context. Right. Less formal. And then I think you've also probably discussed it on your, on your podcast as well. It does us good to look back in our lives and, and to acknowledge who we really are in all of its complicated realities and to acknowledge what is good, even in the midst of what is hard and to see how does that, in, how does that inform the way I think? What might I need to let go of there, or what should I embrace more fully? Um, who am I really? Who am I? And I can't be anyone or anything. I need to kind of know my story, and my story is not I'm an upper middle class German um, with a with two two dissertations in theology um, <laughs> in Nazi, <laughs> Nazi Germany. I'm I'm me um, wearing my puffy pink Old Navy coat on a bicycle around Berlin. And,
1: yeah. yeah. How has that kind of, that connection to place met you?
2: Yeah. I, obviously, I I cast a civic lens on Bonhoeffer. And yeah. then I try to turn it on myself because I think I'm also in this book, because it is very much a memoir of my experience of learning and discovery. Um. And it's it's odd that I'm trying to discover an American story, that when I'm not in America. But I do think about okay, what are the stories that I've inherited as I'm a white American? We tell particular stories about ourselves that um, I think demand interrogation, and um, and we would do well to learn, listen, and repent of sins that we. Would not we wouldn't say we have committed our ancestors have committed, but that we have in some ways inherited guilt and shame, um, mm-hmm. and and that there can be strength from refining that story. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one element I would say that I and I address it in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, looking and but realizing that there are parts of our American story that are that are still precious and still deserve to be pursued. Um, precisely out of that refining process. like I, I think there's, there's something about the idea of being American that um, we still need to cherish and, and not fear as simply being like, oh, this is, could be a source of idolatry. We know it can be a source of idolatry and we need to confess it. But what is good in the midst of what is difficult and complicated, we, we need to preserve. And mm-hmm. a lot of those are like human dignity and freedom um, I think we're covering a sense of our, of our understanding of a citi- being a citizen and that that entails obligations to others and not mm-hmm. simply expressions of our own individual lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, and that we need to tend to our communities too. And that God cares that we tend to, to our communities. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he wants human flourishing. He yeah. wants it for everyone. He sends his rain on everyone, and mm-hmm. I think he, I think he does that in in f- allowing healthy uh, communities to form. Mm-hmm.
1: And one thing you know, you mentioned it previously about you know the civic lens with which you are looking through Bonhoeffer's life. Um, what is so wonderful about your book too is the ways in which you are, it little turns just drawing our attention as your reader to think through. Okay what is, you know, what's the small choice here? Um, yep. What's the small choice to choose to engage instead of to choose to withdraw? Um, and to to realize that we have those choices too every day. And so though sometimes when we create heroes, it's to kind of give ourselves a ticket out.
2: <laughs> that is really well said. Yes. Yes. Um, I tell a story, My. My fourth grader, my middle child, had to go to bike traffic school. Yeah, yeah. And
1: (laughs) (laughs) tell us what bike traffic school is.
2: So, yeah, for
1: those of us who commute by car.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Um, So bike traffic school was it was sort of like the you know the local school and all schools they require it throughout Germany that children have to do these mandatory sessions where they're practicing how to ride a bike. And, um, in a lot of parts of Europe, um, uh, you know, I I think it's a slightly more integrated. it's not just slightly, it's a vastly more integrated transportation system. And in Germany, children are expected to very quickly learn how to ride bikes and get themselves places. But these monitors that were at this school would, often kind of bear down on the kids. Like if they would make a mistake, they would ridicule them. And not all the time, I'm kind of playing it up. But there was one time that this one of the monitors really kind of lit into Hannah and made her practice something over and over. And I really could not figure out what the infraction was. And I had, and I had kind of told her because we had gone so many times. I had already told her like, just lay low, just let's get this done, and let's get out of here. And I realized I was already teaching her, um, kind of to, to to train a particular muscle. And it was a, it could be applied morally. It could be applied civically. But it was a lens through which to sort of say, just try to re- reduce the friction and just get through it, and it it entailed a certain kind of inner retreat. Mm. Um, and I could see that that in in sort of the stress test that the Nazi um, regime placed, um, and and that you know for many it was welcomed um, the the ideology and the laws and the horror of it. Um, that kind of instinct, that instinct to retreat and to pull in was a dangerous one. And, um, but it was also dangerous. It was morally dangerous to do. Mm -hmm. Um, It was obviously, it allowed you to survive, but you, um, but you never did so with an unscathed conscience. And I, and I could just see that that was, I was already kind of forming her in that, in the very small, experience of traffic school <laughs> <laughs> of <laughs> riding a bike the, dealing with the minor power of the traffic mm-hmm, school mm-hmm. That's
1: right. we'll be back in just a second with the rest of our conversation
0: this episode is brought to you in part by beyond ordinary women ministries which prepares christian women for leadership at bow we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone so whom do you influence In addition, Bow offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low cost Bible studies at BeyondOrdinaryWomen.org.
1: And here's the rest of our conversation. Yeah. So, what what small steps have you even practiced, even though you're in Brussels now, and you were in Germany before, but um, to kind of belong to, cho- choose to belong to the community that in which you're placed?
2: Yeah. Um, I think, for one, I think it's great, literally, to get out of your car. And walk around.
1: That's it one was, of my favorite things to say. Is like go for a walk. For a walk. <laughs> I say it all
2: the time. Yeah. Yes. Um, we were back in the United States this past summer, and um, not to harp on the bike thing, but we were at times carless when we were having to travel around, and it's incredible to just decar for a day, and. Um, to try that out and to see, like, is how how walkable is this? How would someone who doesn't have like a roaring, you know, SUV get around here? And yeah. um, just to experience what your community feels like, and and I think going carless is a great way to do it. Um, and but even more so, like just walking around, it gives you just a taste of kind of where you actually are and yeah. to. Face what it's like, and to see it with a different set of eyes, and and to see it at a speed that we can actually take it in with our bodies. Mm. Um, I think I mean, this is this is literally that's the that is the speed at which we should be kind of doing community. So I can't say I have this figured out. Um, no. I. Right, like we write books not because we haven't figured it out, it's because we don't. Like,
1: <laughs> right, right, exactly. We're, Amen. We're,
2: <laughs> yes, we're we're wrestling with these things and trying to figure out how to make them to make them work. I try to say hi to my neighbors. Yeah, I try to, ju- and it's usually awkward. Um, or uh, I try to create beauty, like we planted bulbs. Um, I'll pick up trash, like the. I think it's the Swedes that have a, a word for like walking around or running around and picking up trash. I think it's <laughs> called like, I'm not, it's like plogging or something like that, but yeah. like honestly, just caring for your space. Um, I think another really practical thing, and these are all very kind of quiet and inner disciplines. Um is literally looking at your keys so we the title of the book is Keys to on our first house and i and I actually think our keychains are pretty um, powerful indicators of places of our responsibility
1: mm. um,
2: they show us places where mm. we might have power and authority and therefore that needs to be coupled with a robust understanding of our our place as stewards and um, as people who have who have real responsibility for for places and for people um look at look at your keychain and 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 see what it might mean Pre- mm-hmm. like pray through your keychain pray through mm-hmm. it pray pray about the stories that are that rep- that are represented there they might be um your mailbox it might be i don't know for you know people that have a locked mailbox um it there there are lots of different ways that you can look at that it's just like a little a little practical discipline mm. um, and i would say to for for listeners who are um who have a relationship with god ask him i think ask god to engage your imagination because i don't i don't have like tips or tricks but, i think we yeah, have me neither like, <laughs> i don't have the tips or tricks i um I think places are really unique, and stories are unique, and I can't know them all, and, and sometimes they need to be answered in a different way, but mm-hmm. God knows the stories of these places, and it may be that you need to um, explore the history of your place.
1: So what did you learn from
2: Bonhoeffer
1: about kind of civic housekeeping? You use that phrase a few times, which I love, um, just kind of this the sense that we there's mundane things like folding the laundry and doing the dishes and doing the grocery shopping, and yet these are very small acts of care um, and attention. Yes.
2: I mean, you and I both know that there's been a lot of attention turned towards sort of um, trying to rediscover meaning and holiness and um, God's love and care for what we would describe as ordinary yep. And I am interested in extending that narrative that I think we have that needed to be articulated yeah um, and saying in what way do in what way do these ordinary rhythms of life? how do they matter to my neighbor and Mm -hmm. how do they matter to the people that I am sharing space with my family, obviously as my primary neighbors, but then also the people that are literally next door or across the street. And um, I take the word civic housekeeping, not from Bonhoeffer. I take it from Jane Adams, who was a a significant, um, significant public voice in American history. And, um, Jane Addams had an eye for how poorly, um, uh, new immigrants to the United States were being treated and that they were being exploited basically. Like these were easy prey for people that know how to be predators. And she, in Chicago, took on, um, some pretty significant power figures, but she- and and did so quite ably. She but she also offered a home, like she developed whole house. And I don't go into all of this in the book, but one of the things that she paid attention to, though, was the need for like trash collection. She actually became um, uh, sort of like in charge of trash collection for a particular ward. Um, that to me typifies, I think, what is best about. Um, our American civic story and um, and it's something that I think we could recover um, And and to say, we need to look at our spaces and really hear the story that's being told there and see what practical thing I can do as a way to express love to my neighbor. Mm-hmm. And I also think articulating, paying attention to the way we narrate our civic life, particularly with our children, is another mm-hmm. discipline that is is um, is worth practicing? So here's an example. I posted this recently on Facebook. I was telling my children. Everyone's all freaked out right now as we're recording this about the coronavirus, of yep. course, and we're all trying to do our part to um, to make sure that our habits are are sound, hand washing, all the rest. And I said to the kids, "Look, I obviously don't want any of us to get sick, so we all we do need to wash our hands regularly." But just remember that when you wash your hands well, it's a way of expressing care for other people. Mm-hmm. And I think just the simple task of drawing, drawing our children's or other people's attention to how can we belong to one another again? Yeah. How can we incorporate more people into the narrative and not just, not just how do I keep my kids safe? Yes. I want my kids to be safe. Right. Right. That actually, the safety of my children is intricately yeah. entwined with the safety of other people's lives. Yeah. I need to care about them. It's literally self-interest to yeah. offer care to others. Um, so, it, yeah, I would like that. I, I, I'm interested in that that story, um, mm-hmm. and 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 bringing that back to the fore. Mm, I
1: love it. I'd love to talk too um, about Acidia. We both have talked offline in our friendship about our love of Kathleen Norris's book, <laughs> Acidia yeah. and Me. Um, but I just read a little bit out loud to my husband of your book the other day. Um, you, you write here for the human heart to keep caring, to keep giving a damn, one cannot avoid the pain of life. At that crossroads between entering into life's troubles, Or withdrawing from them, acedia offers a deceptive escape. And you talk about just, you know, that you can move into this from this ease of indifference to a numbing bliss. That it starts with like this anxious boredom and then frantic activity and then into a psycho-spiritual numbness. Um, And I was like, ah, this is so how we live, especially as 2020 Westerners. Like, this is how we live. Like that we yes. we're like anxiously bored. So we're like jittery, but we don't know what to do with ourselves. Like and then we like go 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 and do 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 and achieve achieve achieve, like break down all the ceilings and barriers and walls, and then the psycho spiritual numbness, basically like our Netflix binges. Like so talk to me about Asidia and Bonhoffer and, <laughs> and our modern malaise, Laura. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, I completely recommend Kathleen Norris's yes, book. Yeah. And, and in her book, Asidia, Acidia and Me, I think yes. is the title. Yeah. She it, I mean, she thinks that this is the prevailing spiritual problem of our time. And I think she's right. <laughs> <laughs> so to say that just plainly. Yeah. And but I all but obviously it's not a new problem. Right. We're not, we're not uniquely damned in some way. It's just that we have lost language to name it Mm -hmm. and we don't have practice in identifying it. And we have very few kind of ambient tools to fight it. Mm -hmm. It is in fact, so much of our kind of like entertainment oriented culture is a a acedia factory. It is literally we're swimming in it. Um, And the only way to keep, the only way to keep avoiding the pain is to continue in the numbness and you have to maintain this constant treadmill of, you know, avoidance. Right. Um, and Bonhoeffer, um, it's not something that, it's not something that's, I mean, it's talked about in all of the various biographies, um, because he would confess this as a sin, it used to be considered one of the sins um, that you know in the Roman Catholic Church, um, and it's now been, I think, swallowed up in sloth. sloth I think, yeah. where yeah. exactly, yeah. but it does have. There's so many components to it that are worth kind of understanding on on its own terms. Um, but Bonhoeffer would confess this as sin and um to his best friend and his confessor Eberhard Bethke who wrote the you know sort of the definitive biography of Bonhoeffer and i found that incredibly comforting like it was another aspect for me of being like Dietrich gets it like we he gets how hard this is he gets how hard life is and he and he has um sort of the means to just he could just avoid the trouble he could right. get out of it um so i i offer um the spiritual practice of holding on to the truth um and i write this i am a christian and i write as a christian in this book but i don't presu- presume that the person my reader whoever's reading this book um shares my faith um right. i pres- christians will will find comfort in it and i think people from other faith traditions will as well um, Holding on to something that's outside of us, scripture, authoritative traditions, these are all things we have all long sought to get rid of, but we are in desperate need of. Just holding Mm -hmm. on to truths of human existence. um, I, I lift up the practice of praying the Psalms, engage the Psalms. And honestly, it can be done by anyone. You don't have to believe it. Just yep. encounter them. They are so rich in, um, they you know span the human emotional gambit, yelling at God, asking Him where He is. We we need to actually feel more of our human pain in order to recapture mm-hmm. compassion. We we actually have to feel more of the pain. I obviously I think that there's something offered in the Psalms that's really unique. Yeah. Um, but just. To see the psalms as poetry, even, um, and and praying them, like praying them in in a true searching posture of I need to still feel my humanity, and I need to feel it within this authoritative tradition of scripture. Um, Dietrich relied on scripture; it, it fed him and sustained him, and he meditated on it. Meditated on scripture. And, um, and I do think that that's where he found, that's where he was able to escape his forms of escape.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, It
2: was, it was the way he was kind of able to slip his own knots. Um, And I think obviously I would commend Kathleen Norris's book. I would commend the book of the Psalms. I I think there's a lot of ways that we, for all the ways that we turn inward and that we get inert, um, we do need we need something outside of ourselves to help take us out of ourselves.
1: Let me ask our last question, just as we wrap up, what is your laundry routine? And maybe you could tell us your German laundry routine. And maybe now that you're in Belgium, you have a Belgium laundry routine, but I'd love to hear what it look like.
2: Um, yeah, I actually have some laundry just down the hallway that I've been yes. hoping it wasn't interrupting the, <laughs> the sound of the dryer running. Um, I don't have a very good routine. So right now we have settled on, I feel like I'm constantly, I'm constantly longing for an ideal routine and yeah. never succeeding at it. Yeah. Um, we have now separated everyone's clothes into their own baskets. And so everyone knows where to put them. Yep. There's five people in our family. And for my older two, I am starting to expect them to kind of, br- they need to bring their baskets we down to where we have our, our washer. Um, But honestly, I I often will kind of get started on laundry and then my husband will come and kind of finish it up because I might be lost in a book somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) And then we have a big, I have a giant stack right behind me of laundry that I need to fold. I dump whatever it is out onto this bed and fold it. And sometimes we chat over that. So that's nice. I I have a junkie routine, but we do have a little bit of meaning in the madness. I love it.
1: So you're not like in this kind of moment of bliss, like folding things and hanging them on the line and...
2: No, <laughs> no not at all. And experiencing some sort of like metaphysical... Right, yeah, right. No.
1: I, no. The only one, ter- the one or two times when I did that, when we lived in Scotland, it would be like invariably I'd forget it and then they'd all get rained on and then have to rewash them all. It was... <laughs> Yeah, it was not this idyllic (laughs) moment most of the time.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
1: Oh, but the laundry you always have with you, just like before.
2: (laughs) The laundry we always have. And um, yes, so I'm always, I always know I can do better. I always can do better with laundry. And I'm likely not going to do better. It's okay. It's
1: okay. It can be enough. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Oh well, thank you, Laura. It's been such a pleasure. We're Thanks. excited. We'll be able to give away a copy of your book, Keys to Bonhoeffer House. and we do hope it begins many conversations. Thanks for being Thanks. here.
2: Thanks for sharing the word. Thank you.
1: Friends, I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Laura Fabriki. And I hope that you'll pick up a copy of her book, Keys to Bonhoeffer House. It's a beautiful meditation, thoughtful analysis, and memoir about Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life. And it's more than simply about Bonhoeffer and his moment standing against um, Adolf Hitler during the Nazi era. It's a book I hope that we can take with us into all of our places. And so if you are a new subscriber to the Finding Holy Podcast, will you let me know? Reach out to me on social media at Hales, and I would love to give one of you a copy of Laura's book, Keys to Bonhoeffer House. And so as we go about our days, particularly in this odd moment where we find ourselves, many of us, sheltering a place around the world in relation to the global health pandemic, I want to leave you with one small step. And it's first to orient yourself to this question Laura asked that I hope can help orient our days. And the question is this, how today might I choose to engage versus disengage? what might be the small choice that allows me to move towards someone rather than to withdraw because even though we're withdrawing and social distancing we can still reach out we can still care for our communities our neighborhoods our families our places and those within our spheres of orbit so i hope that's a helpful orienting question to you and the second one is this take some time maybe it's over lunch or a quiet moment that you find yourself in to pray through your keychain The keys represent some of those places and people that we are responsible to and responsible for. And so I'm excited to hear how that enlivens your own imaginations for your people and your place during this time. And if you're looking for another small anchoring practice, head on over to the show notes. It's linked there. I'm offering a free Anchoring Points in a Pandemic giveaway that helps you just to think through how to order your days and to not be swept away by the circumstances that we now find ourselves in. Friends, thank you for listening in. Be sure to share and subscribe. We're still a new podcast, and we would love more people to find the Finding Holy Podcast where good conversations can help you connect the dots between things that matter and your everyday holy life, because big things matter, but so does the laundry.